we want to make sure, and that's part of the reason, again, spread and yield is so important because we know what our investors are thinking. They're like, man, do I want to get into development now where the rates are so high and no one knows what's happening with the market? So instead of being those guys that want to advertise higher IRR, great upside potential, now we need to be, what are the risk mitigants and what what's the worst case scenario? So that's a little bit different about the game that we're playing nowadays. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and on today's show, we have Andy McMullen with Legacy Acquisition. Andy's been involved in real estate for over 20 years, and I was super excited to have Andy on the show to not only talk us through some of his background and mistakes he learned along the way, but also his newest initiative, which is developing build-to-rent models throughout the United States. As we continue to see home affordability being an issue across the United States, build-to-rent satisfies a really unique niche in the real estate space. So tune in to today's episode to learn more about build-to-rent how it fits, and some of the markets that Andy is developing in. All right, Andy, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me, man. It's an honor to be here. appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I'm curious if if you ever got chocolate malted crunch. I have not. What is that deliciousness? It is so good. I, I remember going to Thrifty as a kid. That's how old I am. Thrifty as a kid, like, 15, 25 cents or whatever. I just scooped those suckers up. My dad, when he was a kid, worked at Thrifty. So he'd let me scoop it up, man. Oh. What is Thrifty? Is it an ice cream store? Is it? Oh, a- yeah, yeah. It's, it's now Rite Aid. I think Rite Aid bottom. Ah, um, gotcha. But I think they still have the chocolate multi crunch. I'm, you know, I'm curious if you ever had anybody say, no, you know, I just don't like ice cream. I did. We ended the interview immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Said wrong it's, podcast. It's like, it's like I was talking to my daughter today and she told me she doesn't like Bluey. And I said, like, that's like saying you don't like ice cream or apple pie or Taylor Swift. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, just lie to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So, you know, what we've been really focused on now, Matt, is working on built to rent. So we've been developing a lot of single family projects in large 100 to 300 unit range and then managing them as horizontal multifamily. So basically my background has been in development and multifamily, and it just makes so much sense with the economy now, with interest rates, with the lack of supply, with just the Wall Street desire for yield, that this just kind of came together. And so we have a couple of partners in the Southeast and we're now working on our third, fourth project. So it's pretty exciting. I think that's probably the thing I'm most passionate about helping investors consider today because it's tough to find some of those other deals that we've been doing over the last couple of years. Yeah. And I'm super excited to talk about build to rent because you're the first person I've had on the show to talk about it. And it is a phenomenal trend right now going through the marketplace. But before we get there, you've actually been in real estate for a very long time. Can you take us back to where your real estate journey began? Yeah, very long time, man. I mean, I started off in the brokerage in working in LA, Marina Del Rey's little office, kind of a boutique firm that did a lot of investing so investing in, op- in industrial projects and office buildings, and then I would handle a lot of the brokerage stuff. And then we kind of evolved into other type of deals. Then I kind of got into development. So I tell people that if you stay in long enough, even a dummy, 
like me can kind of just magoo your way through. And I remember sitting in the car, like my second or third year, and I've been doing like other referee jobs. And I was like delivering like auto traders. And I was like, I'd come home after work and I'd be doing like telemarketing calls for like the Disney concert hall. And I just was just whatever it took because of brokerage, it's like, there's nothing, right? There's no, after the draw comes off, you're just you. And for my case, my hoopty car and whatever my resources could be, right? And that's a lot what I tell people that work with me on our team or work with us is that for those first three to five years, it sucks, right? You maybe you collect a little bit of fees, but until you can kind of turn deals into more deals and just kind of build without paying the taxes, then it takes a while. And I always hear people say real estate's way more fun than I thought, but also way harder than I thought. And I think that's part of it because there is this kind of slow climb. Yeah. I appreciate the humility you came around saying that even a guy like you, but I've done some research. You're an econ grad from UCLA. You're no schmuck over there. Yeah. I don't don't, don't give those degrees the the same way. I don't think I would have got in today. That's for sure. Even after all I know today. Same. Well, so I'm a say I've got a sales background and I'm always interested how folks with a greenfield sales opportunity, meaning you're not working for a big corporation where you're given a set accounts to manage, how you found leads and kind of developed your business. Could you take us back to those days and how did you do it back then? It's interesting. When I hear people talk about raising money like before the Jobs Act, which is kind of what we had to do, right? Before you had these opportunities to kind of create your funnels and 506Cs and you could advertise, it was just straight cold calling. And people like, they really don't believe me when I say that because they think that just never works. And how do you stay in a business? But in order for me to find deals, in order for us to find investors, we had to do a lot of calling and a lot of follow-up emails too and trying to set up face-to-face, but really the old school way. And I, and I think if you were just to kind of be reductive about it, it really is about those hundred people that you really kind of invest your time into continually add value and following up, right? And that's what I kind of started to figure out that that 80-20 idea, but in capital raising or finding deals or real estate, there's so much white noise. And for me, and most entrepreneurs that all of us that are listening to this right now, we recognize a part of us that is like, oh, there's a shiny object. And with finding deals and, and raising capital, there's got to be a focus. And for me, ultimately, building out a team so that I, they can keep me from screwing up and getting in my own way. Yeah. I love that you said that because I think so many people get sucked into this. I want to be everything to everybody. When in reality, what you should do is go find a niche. And if you can find a hundred people, you can build a dang good business, no matter what business you're in, if you just focus on those hundred people. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. I was thinking Mitch Hedberg is an old comedian and he would talk about how I I would go down the aisle at the grocery store and I'd see like honey turkey and I'd see mesquite turkey and I'd see smoked turkey. He's like, why can't you just be yourself, turkey? (laughs) Instead of focusing on all these different things, just be yourself, figure out what it is that you're good at and let the other people, especially in real estate, I know that it's an investments, a lot of people that you've had on the show, all of these things are really team oriented businesses. And if you do it all, you'll drop all the plates, right? Yeah. Just to put a bow on this conversation, Brandon Turner, who used to host the Bigger Pockets podcast, posted on something the other day on social media that said, all real estate works in all markets 
You just have to decide which niche you want to really focus on. Because if you try to do all of the real estate, then that's a sure path to failure. But all real estate works. You just have to figure out what works in your market. No doubt. And I think it's even more apparent now where we're starting to see real estate even become more localized. Like in 2008, the music stopped for everybody, right? We were doing mm -hmm. development. The music stopped for everybody. It was just like nationally, there's nobody getting deals done really almost to like 2012. But now you're starting to see, you know, there's markets that are ascending. There's markets that are descending, maybe that we thought were just favored sun. And so I think even now you've got much more opportunities to look in some of the, either your backyard or some of these kind of obscure markets where you can really niche down and become that expert in that particular space. Let me ask you about 2008. So we're entering the back half of 2022 as we're recording this. I think 2023 is going to be a very choppy year for a lot of people, specifically if you're dependent on low cost of capital, which real estate typically over the past 10 years has. Can you talk us through what was your experience in 2008 and kind of what did you do to navigate through that? Yeah. Sometimes I look back and I just wonder how we did, right? Because I mean, you basically kind of think back, we're finishing up a development in Venice, basically what we were working on. So I'm lower man on the deal team, but we're junior partners. We're trying to kind of put all the resources together. And I remember every single day from 2008, really on almost to 2011, we were just on phones with other banks like McFarland, whether you come in and take a piece or private lenders or walk in the project, or is there another private investor that we can consider? Because this was a pretty, I mean, we're talking about an incredible location and knew the asset was going to be coming back, but we had pre-sold, let's say, at, I don't know, let's just use round numbers. Let's say it's 700 a door. Now they're probably, I don't know, 1500 door, but let's just say there's 700 a door, 2008 hits, they're automatically coming down to four through 400 a door, right? So you're basically retrading almost your entire project. This is a live wow. workspace. So I just remember kind of the just overall malaise. Certainly, I think about me personally at that point, you would have asked me, I would have said I was a Christian, but I probably wasn't walking that close with him. And so I just remember that kind of being a really, you know, it was a struggle for everybody. I think if there is kind of a note to take from that and what we're dealing with now is that you ultimately are as strong as your relationships, right? And so you really have an opportunity to serve people at this point in time because everybody needed something, right? Everybody mm -hmm. needed either a deal or an opportunity or money or an investor. And so I think that would be a takeaway today. I do think it's going to be a choppy year. There's no doubt. I do think it's a little bit different in the sense that we weren't oversupplied like we were in 2008. There is a lot of equity in a lot of people's homes. A lot of people are locked in at that kind of two and 3% mortgage rate. Part of the reason we like the built to rent idea is because it does kind of fall into that, what we call triangle, which is kind of the high rents, the low supply. And then we've got kind of the affordability gap, which is just growing and growing, right? You've got now mortgage payments are about 850 to $900 more than the rental payment, which kind of brings everybody to these kind of development opportunities. I know that was a terrible leap, long-winded answer, but I think I got some of it right in there. Yeah. No, I like this idea of when times are tough, your ability to serve others and to help others is what's kind of going to help you navigate through this. And I think that the build to rent model, you kind of beat me to the punchline here, is a very interesting model. So I want to take a step back for a second. And can you help our listeners understand if build to rent is a new term for them, what is build to rent? And we'll take it from there. 
Yeah, sure. So if you think about Built to Rent, it's been going on forever. But let's think it back to 2008, because I do remember when my partner, who's since passed on, my mentor, just beautiful man, Bob D'Elia, started going to some of these auctions, 2008, 2009, all these homes are being bought up by the Blackstones of the world. And they're basically buying them for 50% on 50 cents on the dollar. But they're in these kind of like, just across counties, right? So there's no efficiencies at all. They're just trying to figure out, hey, I can buy a thousand homes in 10, 12, 14 different markets, and I'll just figure out how to manage them. Well, it wasn't very efficient. Obviously, those guys made a lot of money eventually as appreciation came up and cash flow and rents started to rise. But then they started figuring out American homes, Black Rock came back in the game. Why don't we just build these properties in one community, manage them like we would just a multifamily project? So we'll have the clubhouse, we'll have the pool. Now we'll have big backyards. And that was kind of the big draw, backyard and a doggy door, right? And now we can manage them like pulled apart multifamily or horizontal multifamily, but we don't have our managers driving from county to county to try and manage them. So that's, it's been going on, but as far as kind of the development in the sense that now you've got Wall Street that needed yield, right? So if they've got their pension funds or CalPERS or CalSTRS, they can basically create that yield by the increasing rents. And then for a time, they were getting some run up on the appreciation, which we might see regulate back down. But that's in a sense what it was and what it's kind of turned into is now the suburbanization has been going on really even before COVID. So you go to the secondary tertiary markets where they're like, hey, just give me a good school. Give me a good elementary school, eight or above. Give me some amenities that are there. Give me a community where I'm renting and I'm not stigmatized for being the only one or two renters in the area and give me a dog park and I'm loving this. And that's kind of what's been happening. So most of our residents happen to be kind of younger families, either couples or couples with young kids. So that's probably about 60%. And then there's a lot of empty nesters that are saying, hey, look, I love the idea of my barbecue in my backyard, but I don't want to do anything more than change a light bulb, right? And so they're kind of the other class of residents that we have coming into our project. So that's kind of where you've you've seen it from anywhere from just kind of a very simple build out. Like one of our projects has the parks, it has the big backyards and it has the walking trails, but no pool, no clubhouse. We'll still rent in Lafayette, Louisiana for $1,700 a month, right? So there's a lot of demand for that type of asset. Yeah, I want to try to summarize kind of where I see the market and built to rent. And as a guy that's in this space all the time, I would love you to hear your perspective on it. In my opinion, there's two real trends that are going on here. One is affordability. And affordability is mainly driven by the lack of supply. So you mentioned earlier in 2008, we were oversupplied the market, all these build, it's because everybody had a second and third home that they got cheap debt on an adjustable rate that they could just rent out themselves or keep as a vacation home, quote unquote, ninja loans causing a lot of that. So you have an affordability crisis driven mainly by supply. The second thing you see is I think this whole class, we'll call them millennials, but at the older end of the spectrum, it's the same thing where they're just by nature more transient. And that's not a bad thing. I don't mean transient a bad thing. It just means that at times in their life, they want to live in Miami. At times in their life, they want to live in New York. And at times in their life, they want to live somewhere else. And the best way to do that is to rent. However, 
a millennial class is also coming to the age right now where they are having two and a half kids and a dog and they want the white picket space uh, fence. They want room to work from home, work out from home and have a family as well. So I think the build to rent model is really attacking both of those ongoing trends right now in an effective way. Yeah. And the, the other thing that I would add to it is that it's we're in the very early innings of it too. I mean, if you mm-hmm. think about Wall Street, the amount of real estate they own in the multifamily space is really about 50% of it, right? They really only have about 2 to 5%, depending on which statistic you're looking at. So when you consider that, you hear a lot of people saying, well, they're just bumping up the prices, but they, have, they own such a small amount of homes now. There's a lot of money being poured into the development. And certainly these next five years, we're talking about billions. But I think that we're still in the early stages because I think, as you said, people are figuring out, hey, look, I could, I could rent something with all the new tech and I can live here for a couple of years and just commute to my work. I'm working from home, not mess with the traffic. Now I've got the barbecue and the dogs and all that. So I think it's starting to make sense for a lot of people, even before COVID. I think that we started to see it. I think it just basically was accelerated by yeah. after the yeah. pandemic. So I want to shift this now to markets. So build to rent, you're building out communities of single family homes that you ultimately keep and rent out in a portfolio. What markets are you looking at for this specific type of strategy? Earlier, you mentioned something around 300,000 people, 100,000 people, but are there specific markets you're really looking at here? Yeah. I mean, actually, so for us, it's the Southeast. So what we want to see is can we get the land inexpensive enough? And the Southeast still has some great areas where you can get the land inexpensive enough. The impact fees are lower. You've got mayors and municipalities that are much more development friendly. The speed with which you can build these projects is crucial, as you know, in development. So we really like the Southeast. So one of our partners is in Lafayette, Louisiana. We like Baldwin County, Alabama, which is another really fast growing area. I think it's the fastest in Alabama, and you'd be amazed at what's happening there. And then we're looking at Chattanooga, Tennessee the Carolinas. So we really like the Southeast. I think the areas that we feel most confident is if you're talking to a lender, you want to have a decent enough yield on cost. And basically what that means, I don't want to bore the audience because I think it is helpful to understand when you're looking at a development project, whether it makes sense or not. If you're considering what that stabilized income is going to be after you've built up the project, you put all your costs, et cetera, What is that income, that net income that you're going to actually receive divided by the total cost? So let's say, just if I were to give you an example, let's say that your net income is somewhere in that 1-4 range and your total cost for the project was maybe 5 million for the land and 15 million for the build, right? So that's 20 million. And so I think I did this example earlier. So I think it's somewhere in that 7 percent range, something like yep. that. And so that yield on cost, most lenders want to see maybe six and above, depending on the market. And the reason that they care about that is because they care about what the spread is. And the spread is what's the difference between the yield on cost and the cap rate, right? So if you got a cap rate that's somewhere in the five range and you got a yield on cost that's in the seven, now you can basically, you got a 200 basis point spread. That's a pretty good safety net, right? And why that's important to developers and investors who are in, are in development is because that basic number, what we, those two numbers help us create what we call development lift, which is what's the total value that we've created by putting that amount of money into the project, the cost of the real estate itself, the land, 
everything in between, and what is the, against the cap rate. So if you just took that's what seven minus five is that's two hundred basis points. Divide that by the cap rate. That's what forty percent. So we created forty percent value by putting that money in and building out this income stream. And so if we can't get that six and we start seeing cap rates come up and we start letting land costs still come up, then there's not a whole lot of spread. One, you're not going to get your loan. Two, you're going to be really close to underwater. And so we haven't been able to see those yields on costs in anywhere else of the Southeast. So I hope that's helpful because I hear a lot of investors, we talk a lot here on cash flow. We talk a lot about IRR, but when you're looking at development projects, I think you really want to consider what is that yield. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that to me. And I actually will go back and re-listen to that because it's oh, yield shoot. on cost. That means I didn't is... nail it. I didn't nail it. Because I, I, <laughs> no, no, no. I hear you pick up on all everybody else, whatever they say, you've got like some snappy. So I didn't nail it. That's too bad. Yeah. I just can't keep up with the UCLA economics grad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm saying that because like I've heard this concept of yield to cost a lot here recently and specifically in the value add space, not in the development space, but in the value add space around like, yeah, you can bump up rents and increase your NOI and all that sort of stuff. But what is it ultimately going to cost you to get it there? And yeah, I think what you're right. saying is like, if you can get a yield on cost of 7%, but an asset's trading at a five cap, you've created that extra 200 basis points of goodness or what you call right. the developer lift, which, so this is impactful for me yeah, because so exactly. I've so been reading took it. took that 2% and then you divide it by what the cap rate is. Now you basically could tell how much value you've created, right? So in that yep. case, that's what 40%. So that's the big deal. Now, if it takes you 48 months here in San Diego, where I'm located to try and build out a project like that, and you got to deal with everybody in California that basically hates anybody that's trying to do something that doesn't matter whatever your stabilized income is, right? Because the, the time horizon is just too long. Yep. But that's kind of where we feel like if we've got a relationship with the mayor and the community and they love the kind of green and what we're building there, which is a little bit different than multifamily, right? You get your CFO after it's done, right? With our projects, we can build one unit, lease it, build one unit, get the CFO, the certificate of occupancy, and then we can lease it up. So if the lending rates become crazy. You have to kind of pull in the reins a little bit. Then we can just stop building, collect the income. We're not like a half-built kind of project that's in the middle of their community, right? That's super interesting. An epiphany I just had in the built-to-rent model versus multifamily is basically what I'm hearing is like, once you finish a house, you can lease it up and start getting income streams coming in. And right. then all of a sudden that helps you balance out your cash flows because development is a very trunky or tranche. You're pulling yeah. money in a tranche fashion, which means you get a big lump sum of money and you can't pull the next lump sum of money until you meet certain milestones. In this case, not only are you pulling the next sum of money, but you're also getting income streams coming in. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the reason we love it. And with rates where they are, we had actually signed our loan. Now, I won't name the lender, but we had actually signed our loan I actually had the notary and then the next day they decided to drop the LTC from where we were at 80 to 75. Basically what that means is we got to come up with another million bucks or so. I can't remember exact number, a little bit safer deal for the investors. So it worked out. Okay. This is the, probably one of the top lenders in the country. You can imagine where we started because usually those loans are set up on a spread plus SOFR, right? Which is kind of just the short-term rate. 
I think when we started working on this project, the SOFA was like maybe 20, 30, 40 basis points. And now it's at above 300, I think. So you can yeah. imagine if you didn't have a rate cap that was pretty significant, you could watch your projects going, you know. And I think a lot of multifamily owners and a lot of people got in trouble because no one could foresee that. If you got a three and a half and you just decided it was too, too expensive by a rate cap, then you probably are struggling a little bit. So what we want to do as every project that we underwrite, we want to make sure that we can carry that all the way through, even at the higher interest rate, if we had to all the way through for four years or five years with the expectation that they didn't come down without refinancing, we want to make sure, and that's part of the reason, again, spread and yield is so important because we know what our investors are thinking. They're like, man, do I want to get into development now where the rates are so high and no one knows what's happening with the market? So instead of being those guys that want to advertise higher IRR, great upside potential, now we need to be, what are the risk mitigants and what, what's the worst case scenario? So that's a little bit different about the game that we're playing nowadays. Yeah. And I think your build to rent strategy is a little bit different than most development projects in the sense that you already know what the established rents are in that market. I'm assuming your underwriting is based off of current market conditions, maybe minus 10 points versus like the traditional, oh, we're going to raise rents and things like that. So what I'm saying is when you're doing a traditional multifamily development, like you're not even seeing that income or you're dependent on what the asset value will trade at at that given time, you're going to hold these assets and rent them out. So you're kind of in a more conservative underwriting model, just in its general nature of the strategy. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when you kind of think about it, maybe there's some cash flow deals. I haven't seen many since rates are up at the six or seven, right? Because did any of that that delta is not really there. But if we already know, so for instance, Lafayette, we already built some of them, so we know our rents are at seventeen hundred. If we can underwrite that, we're not going to go above three percent per year, which I think is unlikely. I think we'll probably be able to beat that. Then there's some safety there, right? If we can have contingency that's 10 or 15% when most people have five, then investors start to get a little bit more comfortable. If we've got a exit cap rate that's over 100 basis points or whatever that number is. So we try to put in these guardrails. And now as a passive investor for me too, I'd much rather see these 15, 16 IRRs with a lot of risk mitigants than I care to see those high team 20 plus in whatever the deal is, right? Because you know that there's been, just if you just consider the, the, the interest rates, that a lot of that has been sucked out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned Lafayette, Chattanooga. I know enough about those markets to say that both of them are very heavy rental markets. Where's Baldwin County, Alabama? What's the Yeah. So the specific project that we're looking at is Foley, Alabama, which is kind of a Southern part of is the Gulf. So it's okay. in between Mobile and and so what I'm actually going to be going out, I think we're doing next week, so we can get to Lafayette. We're going to New Orleans. Lafayette's about two hours away. And then going back through that area, Foley's probably another four hours from Lafayette. So they're kind of all in that range. Chattanooga, we're looking at something in Austin. Austin's another, it's kind of a different animal, I think, because that market is just, I don't really have it. I think it's a moving target. Some of these markets yes. that we're working on, we kind of have a clear understanding of what's the trajectory. So those are the markets that we're looking at now. There's a Greenville in South mm-hmm. Carolina. So there's a good couple of spots like that. But again, I think as we talked about earlier on the pod, there's so many of these markets that make sense now because you might have one community that maybe they didn't have the sewage system. Maybe you're having not as much water. In North Carolina, there's a lot of communities just over this last year 
and now water's running through it, right? So no more septic tanks, everything's coming in. So now infrastructure is just basically surrounding them and you could still pick up the land relatively expensive. So if you're going to look at it, I would say, irrespective of the markets, the topography, right? We don't want to pay a lot on like land clearing, tree clearing, that kind of thing. The schools, right? I think that's a big deal for us. If you can consider crime reduction, because that's usually where people want to go. And then the normal population growth, economic growth, those are all important. But I think the metrics for those used to be only in those kind of even secondary markets. Now you're starting to see them even in tertiary markets or even further out in the suburbs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I started the pod by saying that you've been in real estate for a long time. One of the things that I'm starting to ask a lot of people for is kind of their thoughts on 2023. So we've alluded to both of us think it's going to be a choppy time. I want you to kind of take off your developer hat for a second and put on your investor hat. What should our normal accredited investors be thinking about as they kind of enter 2023 here? Yeah, I think that you're going to have to basically be really disciplined. I know you've got a lot of different kinds of investors that listen to your show. And we've heard some great ones just on capital preservation, on tax strategy, on all of that. But I think that what I remember about that time was patience is tough. And when you think about 2008 and then it really didn't come back till 2011 and 2012, there's 365 days in each of those years that I'm just like, hey, come on, let's do some that. So I think you just got to be really disciplined. And again, to me, it's much more important that you're betting the a team that's got the track record and the liquidity and net worth to be able to sustain maybe what's happening. Because there's probably been some great opportunities over the last five years, even with younger teams that have done fantastic and very capable and talented. But I think that the second piece of that, where there's the liquidity and net worth to sustain, being able to get loans is tough, being able to refinance is tough. And I think that investors need to be a lot more realistic on that kind of lower income or lower cash flow deal with more consideration on what is their exit cap? What are they projecting for their rent increases? How much contingency do they have in the bank? And I would look a little bit more at the comps too, because I think that's where a lot of people are able to kind of fudge the numbers. Make sure that you're looking at the comps and are they really below what that market is? Because you don't want to be the highest comp, right? You want to be lower. So I would look at those factors. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned comps, but I'm not going to breeze over the fact that you said liquidity. I think, and I've said it a couple of times now, that over the past 10 years, we've all been a little lazy on the fact that money has been a very plentiful supply and easy to grab. And I've been trying to tell a couple of my friends in my network, like you need to have access to cash. You don't need cash in the bank because the strategy has been the past 10 years, get the cash off your balance sheet, put it in assets. It's going up so fast that you don't want to have it sitting in that balance sheet. So I'm not saying you have to have it in your personal savings account or whatever, but you need to have access to cash. And I think we're going to see a lot of people. I don't know if you're following what's going on with FTX and Binance. We are recording this the day after that happened. I mean, you want to talk about liquidity being king, the largest crypto exchange in the world just got knocked out in a matter of 72 hours because of a liquidity crunch. So thank you for saying I was looking at like on Twitter just days before people trying to sell for like 93 cents on the dollar, right? And imagine they never made that deal. Now it goes down to 50 cents. Now we're talking about zip. So I agree. I was definitely on a lot of podcasts over the last year. I'm guilty of it saying, hey, you got to get the equity out of your house and put that cash in cash producing assets because you don't want that on your balance sheet, put that on the bank's balance sheet. And why are you sitting on that? It's just with inflation, it's going blowing up. 
But you're right. Now with where we are, you've got to have access to cash. Whether that's a KP on your team, whether it's maybe collateralizing some of your other assets, whatever that is, you have no idea what's going to happen. And so you just you need to protect yourself. And then what we try to do is with each kind of phase for the development, we want to make sure, look, when the horizontal is done, well, here's where the value is. Now, when the infrastructure is all done, now we can move on to the vertical. Where do we sit there and how with each step can we cash out or refinance or whatever that helps us secure? But we've got to be set up or we may not ever have that opportunity. And so if you don't have the access to capital and cash to keep the property with not refinancing. And I, I think as an investor, you really got to consider whether that's the right team that you want to ride with. Yep. Well, I want to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Have you read The Hard Thing About Hard Things? No, I've heard but about it several times, but yeah. To me, that was a game changer for the reason, like we're all running a business and most books are written about, don't do this, don't do that. And his book was written, look, I already broke my business. Here's how we fix it. Right. Because we have a version of that where there's like we're solopreneurs or we've got a small team or a larger team. And and that would really kind of change the way that I look at the evolution of growth, right? That same people that you've got to help get to one spot might not be in the right seats for when you get to the next stage. And the same thoughts that you have at that stage will not get you to the place that you need to go at the next one. Right. Yeah. I'm gonna have to put that on the reading list because that keeps getting recommended to me. So our second one is, I believe the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have? Yeah, I'm sure you kind of get this a lot. I'm a big Hal Elrod guy. I yeah. get the Miracle Morning. For me, the most important part of it is the writing, so the journaling in the morning where I can kind of just basically write all the chaff away. Because how many ever thoughts we have, 80% of them are negative, right? So if I can just get all that stuff out of my head, then I can kind of start to focus in on the things that I really want to achieve that day. Usually it's three and then I'll read, but the journal has got to be first, then I'll read and then I'll do the workout. And I try to do that every day for my affirmations. It's, it, it sounds like it's probably similar to yours with the Bible or a book. I'm reading seven right now, which is a really interesting book about the seven letters. Revelation from Jesus is really cool to see kind of how these from just like a practical vantage point how did each of these churches act, right? And what was their culture like? It was really fascinating. I tell people real estate always is so much slower than you think. And then yeah. there's one day where it's just so much faster than you think, right? And so can you stay in the game long enough to hopefully get that tailwind? Yeah. I'm glad you said the journaling piece. When I first heard about that, I thought it was very fluffy and very foo-foo. And then I realized when I started doing the activity, how much negative thoughts were bearing down on my mind that I could just release and get out and start the day fresh. So that was... It's crazy how easy, like if it gets on the page or I use Evernote and now it's out. Now you focus on the other stuff, right? Crazy. Yep. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, it's a version of what I told you earlier about being yourself, but I do think people sometimes over consider an expert's view right? Without kind of considering their own, trusting their own nuance and what they've learned. Because it's like you go to any expert, he wants to have an answer for you. And he might have just some of the facts that you do, but you basically think that because he's been doing it for 20 years or 30 years, that he's got all the answers. And usually what I find is the only thing that you can really do to solve a problem is it starts from here and then it comes into focus. 
And you're really the only one that understands that nuance. So way early in my career, I trusted all these experts and I kept watching, kept being frustrated by why are these guys actually smart? They seem like idiots, but they didn't have the information that I did. So I try to tell my team, if there's one gift I can give you, it's that, you know, if a dope like me can do it, then you guys can do it. So they've got all the resources that they need to figure out the answer to the questions. And certainly we talk about them, but that's probably the piece that sticks with me. I like it. Our fourth one is, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? Well, obviously family, but I think one thing recently that I'm really getting a lot of pride from is our church community. So I'm doing a lot of work with the young teens and then some of the young kids Sunday school. So more than just kind of a Sunday, it's weekly. And so I'm really starting to, you know, like a teacher gets so much reward from its students. And you always hear about people, students, me, myself, going back and talking with old teachers. So I think that part of the coaching and teaching for my life had been kind of stagnant for a little while. So I think that's what I'm getting the most pride from now. Isn't it fun to like see somebody that you see their potential, they don't, so you can kind of guide them to it. And then they finally get there. I don't know if there's a better, I mean, just the light going on and you yeah. think maybe for eight months, I don't even know if they're hearing the word I'm saying. And then it'll ask a question that I had talked about months ago. It's fantastic. And I think about my life too. I was always in sports and the coaches that I had and the mentors that I had, I don't know if they thought they were getting through, but I still have them just like God thoughts, right? I still have like golf thoughts from yeah. whatever a coach was telling me. Yeah. Our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, this one is such a tough one. I mean, obviously, with my faith, of course, I would love to be sitting down with Jesus, or I heard, but one of you guys said Paul at one point. I think for me, I'm just really fascinated with people who have kind of built their own empire from very little. So I think of like Stephen Schwartzman, if you recognize Mm -hmm. him, BlackRock or Mark Cuban, billionaires that have this money, but they're doing good with it. Like I'm always, so I would love to probably talk with one of those guys. I think the idea of kingdom wealth, which is kind of our why, how many of these communities can we bless and how many, this money that we've got, it doesn't belong to us, right? It belongs to him. So can we be the best steward of it? And so I would love to be in a situation. I think about that guy who just won, I can't remember, was it? It was in LA. I think he was a $2 billion. Yeah, $2 billion. With $2 billion? Powerball. Yep, yeah, we're so, recording this so the day after I that I want to know, announced. is that guy like, he can't spend $2 billion, So what kind of communities can you invest? That is so amazing. Maybe it would not talk to that guy. How yeah. about that's my one-on-one? Yeah, I said the same thing because we did an icebreaker the other day at work and somebody said, everybody say what you would do with the $2 billion. And I said, first and foremost, there's no way you could physically spend $2 billion. I mean, maybe you could, right? But there's no way. So you have to have some sort of passion or good that you could get back with that. So it was an interesting thought exercise. Yeah. When you think about like the story of Bill Gates, just trying to figure out how do you get water to these places and how much money does it cost? I mean, I try to tell my kids, I've got 12, eight and five and my eight especially is very self-centered now, right? I'm sure she's going to grow out of it. But when you just think about this huge world that we live in and taking that 2 billion and one kind of specific problem like that, imagine the difference that you could make in the world. So I just love talking shop with you, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you, build to grant communities that you're building or anything else that you got going on, where's the best place we could point them? Let's go to our website, legacyacquisitions.com. And we've got a lot of resources there and definitely can get in touch with me on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. We will leave those in the show notes. And then Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. 
Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.